Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa. Rob Roscoe, co-founder and chief scientific officer at Midasin Innovations Group. How's it going today, Rob? Thanks for joining us on the Mycopreneur Podcast. Absolutely. It's going great. And it's great to be here talking with you today, Dennis. You know, it's a really exciting area to be in and I'm excited to talk about Midasin. Sure. Well, we had a chance to connect in person at the Telluride Mushroom Festival this past August, which of course was sponsored by Midasin. And I was blown away by the festival atmosphere, first off, the curation of speakers, the fungi-centric and psychedelically inclined learning and networking opportunities. And I really enjoyed connecting with the Midasin team at the tent there. So I'd love to start off today's discourse kind of continuing some of the things I talked about with the team there in Telluride. And that's about the Midasin portfolio of therapeutic tools that aim to invoke certain aspects or effects of the psilocybin mushroom experience. So what are some of the ways that Midasin's novel psychedelic compounds, which you've helped engineer, Myco001, Myco002, Myco003, etc., differ from naturally occurring psilocybin mushrooms in terms of their impact on the body and the brain, et cetera? So, you know, really, I think the, the core foundation of Midasin, which really speaks to a lot of what you were bringing up there, and we can go into more detail, but the core foundation is looking at compounds produced in fungi as potential replacements for already accepted uh, medical compounds, whether that's over-the-counter medicines, supplement-style medicines, or whether that's prescription in the case of psychedelics. And so we really take a lens of looking at how do these work on a molecular fashion, where are they produced, and with the fungi especially, there's a really sort of interesting lens with the fact that these have been used traditionally across millennia of human history, and so there's a really strong signal to be able to look, well, what's been popular across history, how does that look through a pharmaceutical lens, and how do we leverage that? And so really, you know, I think that's taken kind of two pathways that we've seen as uh, either a over-the-counter, um, you know, supplement type level or a prescription level where there's the, the true psychedelics. And so what we've been doing with the, the pipeline of 001 through 004 is looking at starting with psilocybin, which is what 001 is, a purified psilocybin from a, a natural uh, psilocybin uh, source. And so what we're doing there is then in the next steps of that pipeline, taking a the you know very promising results with that purified molecule and then making it more compatible with therapy safer for use in therapy and this is really by controlling things like time course delivery so you get the same effects but in a more um, controllable package to match with therapy and so matched with that is our interest in the functional mushrooms or what are often called the functional mushrooms but really what we see as potential over-the-counter medicines and the really interesting thing with this is that when you look at them again from this pharmacological lens sort of from the receptor level up they're not exactly the same as the psychedelics but there's major overlaps and so there really is this potential for having some of the benefit that's provided or you know claimed with microdosing of psychedelics or with a repeated psychedelic practice 
with use of these supplements and not having the um, you know more sort of complicated effects that a psychedelic would bring and then you know the the patient or the individual in this case can pick and choose when one is you know relevant or the most appropriate so that's really what we're excited about is you know understanding those nuances and applications Awesome. I firmly believe that everything we've done so far collectively as a species can be improved upon. So I think maybe that's one of the lenses to come at this work with. So earlier in October, it was announced that Midasin will be supplying the Myco001 novel molecule for a multi-site National Institute on Drug Abuse funded study to help people quit smoking, which is a noble cause indeed. So congrats on getting that deal finesse first off. And can we zero in a little bit more on Myco001 on this molecule? And it's role in this study and how it might specifically engender the cessation of smoking. Absolutely. And so this is, you know, for one, I think, you know, it's probably one of the most promising aspects of research as it stands right now. Dr. Matt Johnson at Johns Hopkins, who's really spearheaded this research along with his colleagues, um, you know, really has been working on this project for, for over eight years, you know, almost 10 years now, and it's shown really, really strong results in the preliminary data. And so we've, um, you know, established a relationship with Johns Hopkins and Dr. Johnson specifically to look at commercializing this. So that's one avenue. And then in parallel, he had had this grant application in with the National Institute of Drug Abuse on a, a similar project looking at the same indication but with a slightly different study design and so you know grant grant funding just inherently takes you know its own sort of time course and so you know we're really excited with the fact that NIDA for instance is seeing this as a really strong potential the same that we have the same that the industry has and so you know kind of in following that logic you know we're incredibly excited to be able to take the you know myco 001 that we've been developing into an investigational drug with the FDA for regulatory purposes and then be able Able to provide that to the the NIDA funded study and I think you know the the summation of all that work will really act as a strong uh, demonstrator if it plays out the way that we're kind of expecting from preliminary data it'll be really strong demonstration of the ability for uh, you know not only nicotine cessation but uh, addiction addiction treatment as a whole and this is something you know where we as Midasin really we're excited to support the nicotine addiction research because if you look at substances of addiction, nicotine might be one of the most addictive in a chemical behavioral addiction sense and then is also incredibly common across society. And, you know, uh, one in three or one in five deaths, depending on what jurisdiction you're talking about globally, are related to either smoking directly or secondary disease caused by smoking. And so this is something that is really a, a huge unmet need in society. and has the potential on the current data as it stands to be incredibly demonstrative of this potential. And so very excited about that from, for those reasons. And to kind of circle back to what you were asking about, you know, how does this actually work? How are we, you know, in a single dosage or in only a couple doses able to address a lifelong addiction? Because in this case, you know, the average uh, patient in the uh, data up to uh, the current time point, I think is, you know, 30 years of smoking with multiple, you know, all of them have tried to quit multiple times. And so really what we're doing is leveraging the potential of psilocybin to act as a neuroplasticity agent, to allow for new neuron connections for diversity of 
thought patterns around the dosage. And so the um, treatment very much looks like a A, B, and C part, with A being a preparatory phase where you're really setting expectations for the patient, uh, underlining why they want to quit, why they don't like smoking anymore, why they wish they could quit, you know, why they're, they're going through this type of therapy. The B section in the middle is the actual psilocybin experience. And so this is a chaperoned, you know, um, uh, psilocybin experience with multiple therapists. So the, the patients are always being monitored for safety, these sorts of things. And then the C part is follow-up therapy integration, if you will, after the psilocybin experience. And this is really um, re-solidifying the reasons that were, you know, brought up in the preparatory phase. And this sort of whole package results in patients that tend to be very adverse to cigarettes at the end of the process. You know, the, the reasons, you know, for personal health, for um, societal acceptance, these sort of reasons that they're, they're choosing really kind of come to the forefront. And so in a lot of ways, I like to think of this as a mental reset switch in a very, you know, basic sense. If you pair that reset with very pointed therapy, there's a lot of potential to address these very, you know, maladaptive and negative behavioral patterns such as smoking. Thinking about global society, you know, I grew up in California, so in the 90s, smoking was already on its way out. I don't really know too many family and friends that smoke, but having lived in Saudi Arabia, having traveled in Indonesia and across Asia, it's extremely common. So I think maybe that need is a global need in a lot of ways. To move on from that, I'd love to talk about this entourage effect present in psilocybin mushrooms, because I've heard a little bit about it, and I think these are very interesting discussions, because it's almost a reductionist view to talk about a psychoactive fungi as psilocybin because there's so many other things going on there and there hasn't been a lot of study to my knowledge devoted to these other compounds and I'm going to butcher some of the names here but baocystin is one of them, harmane and harmine, a range of beta carbolines and so I'm just very curious if that is an area of study that Midasin has invested any time in or maybe somebody else in the space that you know of, of focusing on this entourage effect and really kind of separating out these different compounds compounds and how they impact the overall experience of a, a psychedelic mushroom experience. Absolutely. So this is something that we've actually been interested in at Midasin since the founding of the company. And the reason that we focused firstly on purified psilocybin is because it's a stepwise strategy into that complexity that you just mentioned. And really, you know, from a drug design, drug development point of view, you have to do that stepwise because always you're asked the question, um, you know, well, why are you adding in these other components? Why are you making a more complex solution when a simpler one might be safer, or more efficacious, etc.? But there's really strong evidence from you know traditional use that the the large combination of these tryptamines and beta carbolines that have been um, found so far um, can actually provide a more nuanced experience for the the patient or the user, specifically controlling things like potential anxiety. There's uh, you know multiple accounts from traditional practitioners that have access to multiple species where they describe the effects of those multiple species as vastly different. This suggests that there's you know quite different chemistry going on there. And specifically 
specifically in our research, this is actually really, you know, sort of, um, you know, interesting to me as a scientist, and I think is something that we'll continue to, to track down this path, is so we've taken P. cubensis and other common uh, species of psychedelic mushrooms and then run them through, um, you know, academic grade analytical chemistry. And we've actually seen that what prior was, you know, in most literature was reported as just psilocybin and psilocin and then maybe remainders of baocystin, norbaocystin, etc., is actually about 40 likely psychoactive compounds. And so there's even further diversity beyond what you were listing earlier. And all of these are really falling into two categories, either into uh, tryptamines of unknown effect, so similar to psilocin, psilocybin, but with slightly different properties, or into the beta-carbolines, which are really actually interesting because they make um, the, um, the patient or the, the person who's experiencing these effects, they make them more sensitive to the actual psilocybin component. So adding those two things together, you really suggest that there's you know, some interplay between them because of the basic properties, that's what they do. The beta-carbolines make you more sensitive to serotonin agonists in general. And so it's a really exciting question, but the application of how that will then move into, you know, say a prescription medicine is the longest time course just because of those layers of, of complexity. But, you know, a ton of potential there and scientifically very, very interesting. It is. And it's recently come to my attention that there are even compounds that are different between fresh mushrooms and dried mushrooms. And I had a friend advise me, he's like, you should maybe, if you're cultivating or know someone who is like, try them fresh because by drying them, inherently they lose certain compounds and certain values to them. And I think that's a really interesting area of study that I'm glad somebody is devoting the professional scrutiny and time and attention and resources that this deserves. And that's exactly true. It's, it's those types of aspects that are that level of complexity, because if you're designing a medicine that then is going to be uh, sold across, you know, a large area, you know, say of North America, for instance, every batch has to be the same. And so if you get this variability in drying, you have to account for that and make sure that it's the same batch to batch to batch, you know, it has to all be uh, brought into the process. And so that, that, that's a very good example, one of the layers of complexity there. Awesome. Well, the show's called Mycopreneur. So one of the goals is to sort of humanize these brands and these different companies because there's so many people involved in this space and people trying to learn. And we have a global audience, you know, people who are interested in launching their own companies and at various stages of that. So I always like to ask about the day-to-day -day work of the, the people that we interview because looking from the outside, it's this biopharmaceutical company. There's, you know, research partnerships and military partnerships. There's all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of capital involved. But I'd love to hear about an average Tuesday for you, Rob? Like, can we find you in the lab glued to a microscope or splicing a genome or something? Or are you pretty much uh, coordinating workflow remotely, etc.? Just would be great to get a little slice of life for the chief scientific officer's role at Midasin. You know, at Midasin, it's been somewhat of a, an interesting context because we actually founded the company during the COVID pandemic. And so inherently, we've designed this as a very um, distributed company. We have uh, you know, relationships, partnerships, sponsored research in seven countries effectively across you know, multiple um, areas within states or provinces within those countries, territories, et cetera. And so we really set up the company to be quite remote, but 
at my heart, you know, I'm a, a research scientist, and so I really do love being in the lab as well, et cetera. We have a, a lab that focuses on the functional mushroom, both preparation and formulary uh, sense, as well as production of the compounds itself in the Denver area. And so I do a lot of hands-on management of the work there. Uh, but definitely, you know, on, you know, to take your sort of example of an average Tuesday, because of that remote footprint, a lot of this is, you know, very much um, organizing from, uh, from afar with very competent core teams at those different locations. And actually kind of as a, um, you know, I think maybe possibly a sign of moving out of the COVID sort of pandemic times, uh, myself and uh, Josh and Rakesh, so our CEO and chief medical officer and myself, uh, just got back from a uh, almost two-week trip to Europe uh, visiting our clinical trial locations in Leiden in the Netherlands and then in London with King's College, some of the sponsored research that we have at Imperial College London. And so that was actually really refreshing to then, you know, be able to balance what inherently has been forced to be very remote work with a lot of uh, in-person interactions. And so uh, I think moving forward, it'll be a nice mix of the two. Cool. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself in that context as I've been running meetings and, you know, working with my production company remotely. But having a chance, like another example, you know, Telluride, where we were in person and meeting people, that was so refreshing to be around all these people and to get, you know, you don't get that when you're doing Zoom calls in Riverside and all that. So, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat this, but I believe that we as a global society and certainly in the U.S. are facing a mental health crisis these days. And you see it manifest in so many different antisocial behaviors and social incohesiveness and just problems that I want to see fixed and would love to see them fixed. So a lot of people, myself included, are unabashed evangelists for psychedelic assisted therapies. We've seen them work. You know, I've got a group of friends who are veterans and the veterans, it works for them in a lot of contexts when, you know, the VA and the opiates and this and that have not worked for them, but they find tremendous healing in psychedelic assisted therapy. So there's a lot of people who, who see this promise and who want to shepherd it into the mainstream of society and an effective and a safe and regulated manner. So I'd be curious to hear about if you have any projections on timeline, because I've got wildly different perspectives from different stakeholders about when they see psychedelic assisted therapies really moving into the mainstream, because as much as we're seeing BBC articles, Rolling Stone and mainstream press, it's still kind of a fringe thing. You know, like I don't think many people in my family would consider using a psychedelic assisted therapy. However, if a doctor prescribes it to them, that's a totally different story, right? Is that sort of legitimacy and that regulatory scrutiny? So I'd love to hear if you have any projections based on your work of when it might be commonplace for someone who wants to quit smoking or someone who wants to deal with their PTSD, et cetera, to go get uh, psychedelic assisted therapy without having to travel to Jamaica or Canada or do it, you know, underground in, in uh, Echo Park or something. Yeah. So firstly, I completely agree that having this available through normal channels, through prescription, through trusted doctors, through trusted physicians is really the, the bridge that will gap you know, currently we have a subset of the population that can see really strong benefit from going on these retreats, but that's not accessible to the whole population really in an in a, um, easy fashion. So I think, you know, what you're mentioning there as far as prescription availability through, you know, common medical channels is really the answer there. But as far as, you know, um, a prediction on when does this, you know, available through, through therapists, through doctors, through per prescription, I think it's really indication based and this is you know partly why we've chosen the strategy that we have at Midasin but 
The regulators care completely about having solid medical evidence on the safety and the efficacy for, for treating a, an indication. And so because of that uh, orientation, the things that are available for prescription will be indication specific first. Uh, physicians tend to as data supports, start prescribing off-label. So I think there'll be kind of a gradient of availability after that. But if I look at our own projects, for instance, you know, one of the reasons that we've been so bullish about smoking secession is that the total time course from where we're at right now in the middle of basically a phase two trial to the end of phase three can actually be incredibly short. And it can be incredibly short when compared to things like uh, major depressive disorder or treatment-resistant depression. And it's partly because it's a binary result. People quit or they don't quit. And the comparison that's relevant is either three or six months out as opposed to a year versus two years. And so this is something that we as a company are really leveraging to design the most robust but uh, rapid time course to address this regulatory um, you know, trial need. And so we're you know, uh, targeting a phase two, three hybrid uh, strategy there, which should start seeing patients right after the new year this winter you know in the trial design but the total trial and regulatory process in this time fashion could be you know basically a year and a half to two years from that start point and so this is actually one of the things i think maybe it may be the, the quickest route but it would be specifically for smoking secession first and then additional data would have to support expansion beyond that i think it's kind of a, a similar but maybe slightly longer time frame for um some others in the space and their treatment-resistant depression work, uh, I think they'll be definitely in that two-ish year window. One, one or a couple indications will see approval. Awesome, and I think a lot of people involved in this space have been flabbergasted at how quickly everything has moved over the last year or two. And I think the pandemic did give birth to a lot of people looking for solutions. All of a sudden, mental health became this huge talking point, more so than it was maybe five years ago. But a lot of people we've talked to have expressed that sort of surprise at how quickly things have moved and where it goes we don't know because we've got wildly divergent perspectives, but obviously the momentum is headed in the direction of popular acceptance and broad cultural acceptance of psychedelic assisted therapies and the legitimacy of these tools done within a uh, appropriate environment and context. Definitely. I think too on the, the side of the PTSD and the you know sort of political support that I see, I think there's growing acceptance outside of the traditional channels that have been interested in psychedelic therapy, so the research community and uh, you know maybe more of the activist community and um, the sort of you know side of things. There's a very conservative side of the military that's very interested in the fact that they know PTSD is you know untractable in their population, and so they're willing to look at anything that has strong data and the, the, the strength of this data is almost impossible to ignore. And so because of that facet, I've been really encouraged by the caliber of either retired or currently active military personnel that I've seen support things, maybe not in a PR sense, but in a talking to other politicians and talking to regulators sense. That's been really encouraging to me because it's those sorts of stakeholders that are needed to really kind of uh, you know tip us over that that um, you know inflection point and, and see greater acceptance. 
100%. Yeah, having dialogues with our friend Colin Wells of Veterans Walk and Talk, he talked about how difficult it is to spread some of this gospel to people in the South or, you know, just using that as an, as an example, where maybe in California or New York, you might have people more exposed or open to these things. But there's a broad swath of the population and of military veterans who would not even consider going this alternative route unless it was ordained by maybe a commanding officer or by someone who's within that power structure. So it is very exciting to see you know, I come from a very traditional conservative background, and the data is almost, it's impossible to argue with when you start gathering it and really putting it out there for the world to see. So it's part of the goal of this podcast is to have interesting conversations with people who are doing this, and we it stands up to scrutiny, et cetera. So it's my understanding that uh, many of the core stakeholders in Midasin were active in the cannabis industry and are coming from that lens. And we've seen a lot of development in the psychedelics industry just in the last couple of years, as we just mentioned. So I'm curious about some of the fundamental differences from your perspective about developing a cannabis company and being involved in that space and dealing with regulators. And now, you know, in California, I can walk down the street and I can buy cannabis at any number of dispensaries. And if you had told me that 10 years ago, I didn't have to travel to Amsterdam and I didn't have to go way out of my way. No, it's going to come to you. And then even more so that during the pandemic, cannabis dispensaries were a essential business when everything else was closing. Like that was a, a rapid shift in cultural perception, I think, at, at a large cultural scale. So I'd just be curious to hear about some of the perspectives and differences from someone who's been through the whole journey of cannabis into a more mainstream treatment and legitimate treatment option, and now being involved in a similar space with the emerging psychedelics industry, some of the differences and similarities there. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's definitely an interesting experience comparing the two kind of in, in hindsight or you know present versus hindsight. So my, my role on the cannabis space was very much in patenting biotech uh, improvements of cannabis plants and uh, you know pharmaceutical formulations. I uh, was a director of research for one of the big Canadian companies for a while. But the thing I see that's sort of parallels and then very stark differences between the psychedelic industry right now, really the pharmaceutical psychedelic industry right now, and uh, the cannabis industry, is cannabis was all, always two-thirds uh, recreational, if you will. There's always, you know, a medical avenue, a medical lens to it where people are, you know, using uh, cannabis for palliative care, anti-anxiety, these sorts of things. But there's always been this direct-to-consumer overlap with rec uh, recreational use, which I think is appropriate for cannabis and has led to it being developed as businesses much more similar to um, what you would see from alcohol companies. And that's, I think, why you see a lot of interest from alcohol companies in the cannabis space. So it's very much viewed as an alternate in a uh, consumer sense to you know consumer consumption of beer, wine, liquor, this sort of thing, at least by a certain segment of the business community. That's starkly different than the psychedelic space, which I think the you know the business community is seeing more and more as a pharmaceutical um, you know business uh, angle, and I think this is based on what the data is supporting. You know, the data is supporting safe use in medical context, and I think you know um, the industry is not against personal use in any sort of fashion, but there's no data to support a business or less data to support a business around that avenue as it stands right now. And so I think that's a pretty stark difference. In cannabis, those were all always head and head in the psychedelic space. I think it's much more stronger in the medical applications uh, side of things, which then lends a lot more biotech lens to it. Um, 
The thing that's very, very similar though, and I think has been a catalyst for the speed of the development of the psychedelic industry is that especially at inception, it was very much a same overlapping group of investors that were interested in the space. And if I look at why do I think, you know, our company has been able to, um, you know, scale so quickly, why our competitors have been able to do similar type work, it's really because of a trifecta of things. Uh, one is really strong interest from the population, you know, general public, because of things like Michael Pollan's work, popular press articles, really sort of showing this promise, some of the work from our advisors and you know, collaborators at Johns Hopkins, et cetera building sense of respect for the data from the research community, and then finally the investing community being really willing to invest heavily because of those two factors. And those investors were very much you know, the same, at least initially, as the cannabis space. Sure, yeah, that's one thing that we've been seeing a lot in California because so many people had success in the cannabis industry. You know, In Colorado, of course, we've got a lot of friends who are coming from there. And it's just been really interesting to host this podcast and have so many different perspectives and stakeholders because we've, you know, as I mentioned before, we're inviting a lot of people like yourself and people involved in biopharmaceutical companies, but also kind of like roots level activists, people in Jamaica, and, and you get a sense of how global this movement is. And one thing I like to latch onto is when, when people try to, you know, it's very frustrating in a lot of ways to look at the news and see what's happening and look at all of the political discord and all the challenges. but. If these transformational psychedelic experiences become broadly available to the public, it's almost unimaginable what the future of society could look like is one of my perspectives. Because, you know, in my own case, it's been tremendously transformational. And, and I just I want that to be available in a safe channel and a safe capacity for more people who want to experience that, who want to, you know, move along from the industrial age and the last, you know, 100 plus years of society and move forward towards something new and something more constructive and, and beautiful, hopefully. So I have tremendous hope for the future that more people will be able to access these experiences and fundamentally shift a lot of values in the way we consume and the way we relate to each other, et cetera. So before we let you go, we, we touched on pretty much everything I wanted to dive into today, but I always got to ask what you're working on right now insofar as you can speak about it. I'm sure that there are plenty of things that you probably can't tell us about, but would love to hear about what Midasin's working on or what you're working on right now that you can share with us that we can look forward to on the horizon. Yes, I think, you know, my current, you know, work focus is really sort of twofold. One is supporting the clinical trials that we were just talking about, you know, our strong efforts in smoking secession and PTSD. So that's a, you know, takes a good, um, solid fraction of my time. But looking much more long term, we're always very interested in how do we improve these templates that we're working on. And that's kind of how we view them is they're really potent templates provided by nature. There's a lot more diversity of them, like we were talking about with the entourage effect than is even currently accepted, you know, that nature provides. And there's a lot of ways that uh, we can use proven uh, pharmaceutical techniques to also make these improvements. And so when I'm, you know, I'm describing this, we're really making a library of potentially new, uh, nuanced, tunable, easily deliverable psychedelics. And it's really exciting to me as a scientist to think, you know, in the next two, five, ten years, how do those end up into similar clinical trials to this, you know, promising work that we're seeing with smoking secession and uh, PTSD. So it's that sort of whole pipeline and being able to put new ideas into that that really gets me excited and is, you know, a large chunk of my work. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Rob Roscoe, for joining us on the Micropreneur Podcast. It's been a pleasure, and I hope to see you all at uh, Telluride next year or one of the future events. Oh, definitely. It's been great talking with you today, Dennis. 
There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode. And also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.